0: It doesn't bring you joy, just let it go. So teaches best-selling author and house decluttering guru Marie Kondo in her wildly successful book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. When we're surrounded by an overabundance of things, Kondo teaches, we should take these items one by one and if they don't bring us joy, we should just let them go. Just get rid of them. And As someone who admittedly has a penchant for nostalgically holding on to things for far longer than I probably should, this is no doubt solid advice for people like me. If certain items are no longer useful to us, but just, say, clutter up the attic and colonize our garage, not that I have any experience with that, we should just let them go. I can no doubt get on board with this. In fact, I probably should get on board with this, but that's not the reason I bring up Marie Kondo this morning. No, the reason I bring up Marie Kondo this morning is to highlight how her approach to tossing aside anything that does not bring us joy can be quite useful for decluttering our homes but how it can meanwhile be quite destructive for directing the trajectory of our lives. At least that is if we don't have a proper understanding of what joy actually is. For it's one thing to finally throw away that 1994 Ravenscroft invitational soccer tournament shirt that our wives hate so much, but it's an entirely other thing to believe that we should turn our backs on every other person, organization or commitment in our lives simply because it or they aren't making us feel blissfully happy. And that in the end is what this sermon will try to distinguish for us. This sermon will try to remind us that joy properly defined is not synonymous with thrill or pleasure or excitement or tingly feelings. For far less a feeling than an awareness, and far less an emotion than a condition, joy is the fruit of the Spirit that attends our way when we have rightly honored and served and shown up for one another. Which leads me to a story. And it's a really wonderful story, so listen closely to it, because I'm about to tell you of one of the most joyful moments of my entire life. And it goes like this. About three years ago, April somehow found out that as a Christmas gift to the community, a ballet company in Lexington, Kentucky, which was about an hour's drive from where we lived, was going to be putting on a free performance of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Well, April knew that this was my favorite book, and she knew that Ada loved ballet, And she knew that Juliana, barely 24 months old, loved everything, assuming her mama wasn't going to be there with her. And so knowing that this would be a universal family hit, April reserved us tickets for this performance. And so December 22nd came, the day of the big event. And I left work around 3.30 so as to meet the family just in time to hit I-75 and make it there for the start of the show. Only when I got home, the family was not quite ready to go. The kids were going berserk, and April was meanwhile frantically looking through the house for a shoe for Ada. Now, notice I didn't say looking for shoes for Ada. I said looking for a shoe for Ada. You see, April had taken great care to dress the girls in pretty Christmas dresses for this event and she'd done their hair in curls and bows, and she'd really put a lot of thought into their apparel. There would be pictures, after all. But now that it was time to leave, she could only find one of Ada's shoes. And despite how frantically she was scouring the house looking for it, that shoe was just not materializing. Well, meanwhile, the time was getting late. And the stress of the situation was building up to me to unnecessarily significant proportions. And there were, to my mind, myriad reasons for us to get out the door and into the car right now. And so I, being nothing if not deeply sensitive and highly aware of the proper things to say in emotional situations, I said quite naturally, can't she just wear some different shoes? that was the wrong thing to say and April let me know it was and I because it seemed like a patently logical suggestion to me held my ground and pointed out it's not like the child doesn't have any other shoes well that wasn't a helpful thing to say either and April let me know that and so both of us incensed we began to tear the house upside down looking for this one particular shoe well, finally, what seemed like an hour later, but in reality, it was probably only about five minutes later, April finally located the shoe, and with Juliana wailing in the background and Ada complaining every step of the way, we shoved the shoe on Ada's foot and then marshaled the crying children into the car. Then, once we were squared away securely, the children, that is, in the car seats, we went back inside to make sure that we had all the necessary provisions for a family trip. There's another way of saying we moved the sum total contents of our house into the vehicle. And then finally, we were prepared to hit the highway en route to the ballet. Now, I could go on with more details about the climate in the car as we bore down I-75, but I trust I've adequately painted the picture for you. It was not a carefree car ride. We were all angry, all stressed all aggrieved, and we were also running late. That said, by the time we pulled into the parking lot of the theater, we'd miraculously made it with a few minutes to spare. And so we hustled the girls out of the car, and April quickly readjusted their hair bows and helped them put their jackets on, and then we sprinted across the parking lot and into the theater. Then we no sooner had found our seats than the lights were going down, and the curtain came up. And there they were, dozens of dancers moving around the stage with elegant poise and effortless grace. And from the moment it began, Ada, who had already climbed into my lap, was entranced. Meanwhile, Juliana was snuggled into April, and within 30 minutes, she'd already fallen asleep in April's lap. Well, as the performance drew on, Ada's enjoyment of the program only continued to grow. She would watch the dancers carefully and then look to April and me with glee. She would clap at the exciting parts. She would lean in close to me and grab my arm at the dark parts. She would point out the various dresses and costumes she thought were pretty. And it was all delightful. But then came the moment. Then came the moment I set this whole story up so as to tell you about. Now, as you'll recall from this famous story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, the mighty lion, submits himself to death at the hands of the white witch. And thus, for a brief period in Narnia, all hope seems to be lost. And at this point in the ballet, the mood in the theater was somber and subdued. And Ada, intuiting the heaviness of the moment, intuiting the darkness and the despair, Ada, at three years old, she took on a somber countenance there herself. But then suddenly the orchestra rang out a triumphant note. And then just as suddenly there was Aslan, the mighty lion, coming back onto the stage, resurrected from the dead. And suddenly the colors on the stage were all bright and hopeful. And the orchestra was crescendoing and all the dancers were leaping and circling around Aslan. And as Ada witnessed this, as she was swept away by the triumphant sound and by the surprising sight of this lion returned, suddenly Ada gasped. And with wide-eyed wonder, she whispered, ''Daddy, he's alive.'' And then she looked to April and nodded her head as if saying, ''It's real, Mama, look, look, he's really alive.'' And then she turned her wide-eyed look back to the continuing drama that was unfolding in front of her. And just then April and I looked at one another, and no words were necessary. And just as quickly our hands found one another, and there together we silently sat. One daughter asleep in her lap, another daughter in my lap enraptured by the performance both of them in their precious Christmas apparel, this a tremendous gift from my wife to our family, Christmas itself only three days away. And there with April's hand in mine and the rest of this tableau happening around and before me, right there I experienced one of the most pronounced and profound moments of joy in my life. And here's what you have to understand about that moment for this story to make any sense. And here's what you have to understand about this story in order to understand why I take up so much space in this sermon telling it to you. You have to understand that the joy I experienced in that moment would not have been possible without the countless unjoyful, unexciting, unremarkable, uncelebrated mundane moments that had gone before it. For if you hear this story and think that the climax of the story, that is the joy I felt there in that theater in that moment, if you think that part of the story could have been possible without the first part of the story, that is, without the argument over the shoes and the stress of getting to the theater on time, if you think the joyful part of the story would be possible without the hard part of the story, you're misunderstanding not only the story but with it the true nature of joy itself. For joy, unlike pleasure, is that which bubbles up almost always unexpectedly when we ourselves have been steadily committed to serving something outside of ourselves. That is to say something outside of our own immediate wills and wants and desires. So think about it this way. If April had just been some stranger I'd been paired with for the evening, And if these children had just been some random, adorable children placed in our laps for a few hours. And if we all had no history together preceding this moment. And if we as adults had no quiet knowledge of all the ups and downs we'd been through together as a unit. If so, then that comment that Ada made, And the wide-eyed wonder on her face as she made it. If so, then it would not have meant nearly the same thing to us as it otherwise did. Oh, it would have been cute, sure. It would have been touching, no doubt. But it would not have elicited that experience of true joy. And so the point of the story is this. The conditions are what made the joy of the moment possible, not simply the moment itself. And that is what distinguishes true joy from mere pleasure or thrill or delight. For these latter don't require a history. Joy almost always does. For you see, joy, so separate from thrill and pleasure, comes upon us when we least expect it, how we least expect it, and almost always on account of that which has gone before it. And thus, we cannot will ourselves to experience joy the way we can will ourselves to experience, say, pleasure. And we can't suddenly decide, okay, right now we're going to experience some joy the way that we can decide for ourselves, okay, right now we're going to experience some excitement. Now, in order to experience true joy, we have to show up for others over and over and over again. And then because of our showing up, joy will soon enough show up too, surprising us every time when it does. That was the title of C.S. Lewis's memoir, you know, Surprised by Joy. And while the memoir deals with how Lewis, late in life, married a woman named Joy Davidman, making it just the greatest title of all time, and of how in so doing Lewis found a kind of joy he'd never known before, while all of this is so, Lewis seemingly gets the title of his book, along with a good deal of its substance, From the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who in his book, Either Or, explains that if one wants pleasure in his or her life, if one wants thrill or bliss or excitement, that avenues abound for finding it. But of how, if one wants joy in his or her life, the gate through which he or she must go is much narrower indeed. For there are no shortage of things to do in this life, Kierkegaard writes, that will grant one temporary bliss or momentary pleasure or fleeting excitement. But no sooner has one experienced this bliss or this pleasure or this excitement than that moment is gone and he or she must go looking for it somewhere else. And to live such a life as this, Kierkegaard writes, that is, to pursue our pleasure and our delight as the ultimate goods of our lives, this, Kierkegaard writes, is to live a life only for oneself. It is to hold up one's feelings and one's desires as the ultimate arbiters of the good life. It is to hold these things up in effect and ask ourselves, does this make us happy? By which we mean, does it thrill me? Does it excite me? Does it please me? And if the answer is no, then just comari it. Just Marie Kondo it. Just throw it out. Just find something new. And the great takeaway to be had for Kierkegaard here is that if this is what one is after, super. Pursue as much thrill as one wants. But if what one is after is something more substantive, something more meaningful, something less fleeting and more lasting, something less like thrill and more like joy, if this is what one is after, then the only way to find it, says Kierkegaard, is by learning to care for others. But not care for others as generate a feeling but care for others as making a genuine commitment, a commitment to serving others and sharing with others and showing up for others and supporting others. There's nothing about this kind of commitment, Kierkegaard points out, that is by definition exciting. There's nothing about this kind of commitment Commitment, Kierkegaard points out, that is, in fact, thrilling and blissful. But the payoff, he writes, is that bliss and pleasure show up when we least expect it. And that more so even than that, that we will be surprised by joy. This is the second sermon in our series on the fruits of the Spirit. And last week we talked about the importance of active love. Not just about love as a sentiment or warm feeling, but about love in action. Love showing up for people and serving people and supporting people. Well, this week, in our second week, I want us to see how joy is inextricably connected to this kind of love. I want us to see how joy issues in response to this kind of love. So, having said that, look closely now at what Jesus says in our gospel lesson for today as he gives his final discourse to his disciples before he's arrested and crucified. First, he speaks to them about the preeminent importance of loving others. And he details to them how he himself has loved others wholly, humbly, unconditionally. And then he goes on to tell them that they too are to love one another in this way, to love others as he himself has loved them. And then listen to what he says about what will then develop if they do love others this way. I have said these things to you, he says, so that your joy may be complete so that your joy may be complete. If you'll do this, he is saying, if you will love one another, serve one another, share with one another, show up for one another, if you will do this, he is saying, you will then know joy. Don't just discard any of those that you find it difficult to love, he is saying, at least not if you want to know joy. Don't just turn your backs on situations that prove hard and tedious in your life, he is saying, at least not if you want to know true joy. Don't just take the Marie Kondo approach to your entire life, he is saying, at least not if you want to know true joy. Instead, he is saying, commit to something bigger than yourself. Commit to showing up for others time and time again. Commit to caring about more than just your own immediate pleasure and gratification. And if you do, he is saying, you will be surprised by how much joy you will receive on account of it. If you do, he is saying, then your joy may be made complete. I close by saying this. Please don't misunderstand the point I'm making. There are no doubt circumstances in our lives that walking away or severing ties from something or some group or someone is indeed the healthiest choice we can make and is indeed the surest way back to joy. But in the world we live in today, we are bombarded by messages that tell us that if we're not experiencing bliss, that if every minute of our lives is not pleasurable and exciting, then we should just Marie Kondo things. Just shake things up and find something that will bring such bliss to our lives. And so the simple point that I'm making is the one that Kierkegaard and that Jesus Christ himself are making. Which is that if we want constant every moment bliss, sure, completely KonMari at all, at all times, But if we want true joy, only the commitment to more than our own desires can make that possible. The Bengali poet Tagore once wrote, and I quote, I slept and dreamt that life was a joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was a joy. I acted, and behold, service was joy. Gang, one doesn't have to be committed to a family and on the way to a ballet to know joy. I only use that as an example. No, one only has to be committed to something bigger than him or herself. One only has to be committed to serving someone or something other than him or herself. One only has to be committed to showing up for someone or something other than him or herself. One only has to be committed to loving others the way Christ has loved us. And so the point of this sermon and with it its final line, if we want our joy to be made complete, We don't have to toss out everything in our lives Marie Kondo style. Instead, we just need to begin loving others as Christ has loved us. Amen.